Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. Um, we've got a great episode here with you this week. Another one of my great mentors, Dr. Brent Weinberg, is joining me uh, this week to talk about neuroradiology, uh, academic radiology, and being a physician researcher, physician scientist. Um, so, Dr. Weinberg, thanks for joining the, the, the podcast. Happy to have you here. Thanks, Max. Happy to be here. Talk to you a little bit, chat for a little bit. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so for those of you who uh, want to learn a bit more about Dr. Weinberg, he's an attending neuroradiologist at uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And then he got his engineering degree at University of Tennessee um, and then did his MD, PhD at Case Western Reserve University in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, my, my hometown and former alma mater. And then he did residency at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, where he was served as a chief resident, and then did neuroradiology fellowship training at University of California, California San Francisco, and then now came to uh, Emory University, and that's where he's been ever since uh, finishing his training. So you wear a lot of different hats. Um, you have some administrative responsibilities. You're uh, very active in research. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about your, your current position and kind of... Uh, how you divide up your schedule or your week. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Um, so I, I've been on the faculty here at Emory now. This is my uh, sixth year, which is kind of crazy because it feels like it's, uh, it feels like simultaneously, like I've been here always and like I just started. Mm-hmm. But uh, now I'm like one of the faculty in neuroradiology and uh, my time is like roughly split between half clinical service and then half non-clinical duties, which is kind of... Uh, you know, everything that's not, that's not reading cases or doing procedures. And so that includes research, teaching, and then some, some administrative roles. And uh, so I do research for probably about 20 or 30% of that time or 20, 30% total time. And then uh, administrative things and teaching like for, for the rest. And so that's kind of like how my, my job is split up uh, now. It's, it's kind of evolves a little bit over time and like academics can be that way. Uh, because if you get some grant or new administrative role, like you might uh, take down your clinical effort a little bit. Uh, if you, you know, if your grant expires or you kind of shift your effort over time, you may become a little more clinical over time. But uh, it's, it's been about, about 50-50 for like most of the time uh, I've been here. Okay, nice, nice. Um, and then administratively, you are now the associate director for the neuroradiology division. Is that, that correct? And then uh-huh. yeah, on, the yeah. res- on the residency side, you're the director for the residency research track here at Emory as well. The yeah, radiology. Yeah. So, yeah. so when I first uh, came to Emory or, or shortly after, um, I, I was always kind of interested in teaching and uh, Dr. Aiken, the fellowship director, kind of asked if I wanted to be the, uh, the associate director of the fellowship. And so I did that for a little while. And uh, then became sort of involved in the research portion of the residency. So we have a research track here that's two residents per year, and so eight eight total residents uh, who are interested in research. And I kind of became involved in both of those things. Uh, but after a while, it became clear that I needed to focus on one on one or the other. 
And uh, my, my experience like makes me a little bit more suited towards training research residents because of my, my research background. So I kind of gravitated towards that a little bit and stepped away from the fellowship. And then for the last uh, almost year, I started in January of this year, I became the associate director of the division here. So I, I participate in a lot of the administrative stuff for the division, some of the scheduling, some of the overall kind of big picture things in terms of like helping, uh, helping Dr. Allen like decide on the sort of direction of the division and like where some, where we're going to go kind of in the big scope of things. Nice. Nice. That's great. Um, on the clinical side, what are your, you know, obviously it's neuroradiology, but I guess maybe take us through like your typical clinical day. I know, I know you do a number of uh, procedures as well. Maybe tell us a little bit about the, the bread and butter procedures you perform uh, on a weekly basis as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my areas of interest really like the things that I like to do, like in clinical practice are, uh, I like imaging of brain tumors. So like on the imaging side, like reading, of you know, brain tumor diagnostic studies, like either when they're first being diagnosed or for the follow-up imaging. And that's been kind of a special interest of mine, like for a while. And then also procedures like, so, so many neuroradiologists do procedures like in the bread and butter procedures are lumbar punctures and myelograms. But I also have an interest in some of the more rare procedures. Uh, so not everyone in our division does biopsies. Uh, not everyone does blood patches for treatment of uh, intracranial hypotension. And uh, then, and you know, kind of not everyone does those. And so I've kind of uh, become sort of a go-to person for that. Uh, so, so to kind of segue into like what a day like might be like for me, if it's a clinical day, usually I come in, we'll start reading some cases in the morning since I'm only clinical 50% of the time, uh, there may or may not be a procedure scheduled for me because they sort of stack them on my days since, uh, since they know that I'm the one who will do biopsies and kind of the more rare procedures. And uh, then, so we may have a procedure, you know, in the morning, at, you know, nine, 10 o'clock, usually working with a resident or fellow and I'll kind of read in parallel with them until they're ready to read out. And uh, we then will, you know, read out at, you know, nine, 10 o'clock we'll kind of go in blocks of cases, like we'll read out, uh, you know, five to 10 cases at a time, you know, kind of mid morning. And then we'll sort of repeat that uh, throughout the day, like kind of depending on how busy we are and wh whether there's more than one trainee. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And then for the biopsies, I, and I know I've seen you do CT guided biopsies. So is that kind of the main biopsies you do, or do you do ultrasound guided biopsies as well? It's, it's kind of funny because the reason I was a little bit late here today was because we were doing an ultrasound biopsy. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, so for the most part, like the, the division, every neuroradiology division, every department is like a little bit different in how, how biopsies are distributed just because of what people's expertise are, is, and sort of where the experts are in different sections. So it's some in some places, IR, the IR divisions will do all the biopsies. In some, you know, they're divided like strictly by anatomic divisions. So body will do body or, you know, we'll do abdomen or chest. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but here, neuroradiology does biopsies sort of above the shoulders. So cervical spine biopsies, skull base biopsies, face, and the neck lymph nodes. And so we were doing a neck lymph node biopsy uh, here. So that's what we were doing. So we do some ultrasound. But I, I would say like 80% of the biopsies I get asked to do are CT biopsies, uh, either of the cervical spine or skull base or face. Um, so, so I'll kind of do those because there's not, there's not a lot of people who want to do those because not many people are trained to do them mm -hmm. uh, because the spaces are a little bit small. They're a little bit dangerous and uh, you have to, 
you have to both have confidence to do them. And then you also have to, uh, you have to have a good judgment about like which ones you're not going to do, because I would say like something like a third to half of the biopsies that I get asked to do are just undoable. actually. They're, they're not, they're not safe to perform. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I imagine that's just as important being able to do them as kind of knowing when knowing the limitations of the procedure. Yeah. I mean, itself. sometimes you, you, sometimes you just have to say like, well, you, you know, like we're, we're not going to be able to do that biopsy because there's just no safe approach, right. They have to mm-hmm. consider surgery or, or whatever. Like if the vertebral arteries on one side and the carotid arteries on the other side, and it, it's just not, you have to take, you have to understand if there's like a five or 10% chance of hitting one of those arteries and causing a stroke that, that it might not, it might not be worth it at that point. Sure. 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 That makes sense. Okay. Um, obviously I probably know the answer to this question, but for the listeners out there, what are, what's kind of like the main areas of your, your research? Like what are your main focus, uh, especially right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of my research is on brain tumors, like, and, and that kind of has two, two main approaches. Like one is like kind of on the clinical side and like the really practical side, we're kind of pioneering sort of some clinical strategies in terms of reporting, like doing a better job of reporting. Uh, so we have specialized report templates here. We use a system that we call BT-RADS or the Brain Tumor Reporting and Data System, to, which is akin to like BI-RADS for brain tumor follow-ups to try to make our follow-ups you know, more standardized and like more practical for our uh, for our referring providers so that they can really get the best information from them. And then seeing like how that affects like the outcomes. So how, how well that's tied to uh, how the patients do and clinical decision-making. And that's like one like, uh, you know, research effort. And then the other is really on the more like uh, forefront of, of research. And that's using MR, whole brain MR spectroscopy to guide radiation therapy uh, for brain tumors. So we take uh, GBM patients they get whole brain spectroscopy, so high resolution spectroscopy of the brain. And then their, ra- their radiation, like rather than just being given to the area that's abnormal on contrast, uh, you know, enhanced MR or flare, it, it, the radiation's given to, to the area where the spectrum is abnormal uh, because it's better, at, it's more sensitive and also more specific for what areas are actually tumor. And so we run some clinical trials on that. We're kind of constantly trying to improve that, uh, that technology. Awesome. Awesome. Now I, I know where, where you did fellowship is a, you know, UCSF's a big brain tumor center. Is this, is this type of research? Have you been doing this since you were at the, you know, trainee level or the fellow level? Um, or is this something you've more kind of evolved in since, you know, coming out into practice? Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of evolved into it a little bit. Like I, I, so I, my PhD project was actually about, uh, was almost like an IR project. And that was how I first got interested in radiology or that was like my first exposure to radiology. And so we were using actually radiofrequency ablation and mm-hmm. drug-containing implants to treat liver tumors. And we were doing it in animal models and uh, then using image guidance uh, to test it. And so I started working with some radiologists and sort of seeing what their day-to-day life was like. And so when I became interested in, uh, in radiology, like I was, you know, I was thinking as much as anything, like I might do interventional radiology and, uh, at the time when I did residency, it was, interventional radiology was still very popular. It was kind of funny because probably like half of people started residency saying they wanted to do interventional radiology, but then people kind of get into it and they sort of realize that there are all these procedures in like different areas and you can kind of still do procedures and uh, mm-hmm. have patient contact in other areas. So then in the end, 
I don't know, maybe like 10 or 15% of radiologists like do, do interventional radiology, whereas many others do procedures like through breast imaging or, you know, body imaging and, and whatever. And so I, I found that like my, uh, my area of interest was, was otherwise. And so I kind of, but, but I was always interested in treating malignancies. And then, so I kind of took uh, the expert in kind of working with cancer that I had before and applied it to the clinical area that I was kind of interested in. And that, uh, that kind of came out uh, when I was a fellow, I started working on some projects with uh, Sumi Cha, who's one of, the, uh, one of the brain tumor experts at UCSF and also their residency director. And so we kind of did a small project and that was sort of like the segue into working with brain tumors. And uh, because of the work that I'd done before, it was kind of a natural transition uh, because I had kind of worked with malignancy and was familiar with kind of the cancer biology and like those processes. And so it was an, e an easy segue here. And uh, then when I became faculty here, like I sort of hooked up with some collaborators uh, through radiation oncology who were kind of working on like projects and kind of gradually built those up over time. But it wasn't something I didn't set out when I was in medical school, like, oh, I'm really going to work on brain tumors or whatever. And, and some people do that, but, but that was not, the path for me was more circuitous. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the Da Vinci Hour podcast is brought to you by DaVinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. One thing I, I think is always interesting with uh, physician investigators or physician scientists is, is do you think that your clinical work benefits your research. And then, you know, you're on the flip side of that. Do you feel like your research benefits from your clinical work? Cause it, you know, each of those are often done, you know, most people only do one or the other, you know, it's, it's a rare, I think it's kind of a rare thing, especially even more so maybe today, even to, to be able to do both and do both very actively and successfully. So I feel like, do you feel like each of those sides for you benefit um, from doing the other? I think for me, it is clearly both. I mean, it's clearly bi-directional. And I, I kind of, uh, I kind of, I sort of touched on that when I was talking about like my PhD project was what really got me interested in radiology in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because when I, when I started medical school, I didn't really know, I didn't really know what a radiologist was. Like, I mean, I think like someone I knew in like middle school or whatever, like her dad was a radiologist, but like, that was, that was kind of like all I knew. And so it was, it was not something that like I thought um, that I thought I was interested in. And uh, then my exposure to it through research sort of drove my, my clinical interest in it. And, uh, and then my, my research interests over time now have kind of driven, it sort of flipped the script and, uh, you know, it's kind of going backwards the other way and sort of driving like what I'm interested in in terms of research because I see, uh, I see the clinical problems and I see like the issues uh, that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so I think it works on both. And I, you know, we do research projects um, and I think that makes us better physicians, right? Because we get, 
we learn more about, about these specific problems. We learn how to address them. And uh, we become experts in ways that you wouldn't necessarily just from reading a bunch of cases, like you review a thousand you know, brain MRs for research, then you get much more accustomed to some of these nuances of brain tumors and you kind of become an expert in those things. And then it's it sort of, then you may find new problems in your clinical practice that you want to address uh, in your research. Sure, sure. Um, okay. And then um, I guess kind of going to that, you know, you talked about some experiences, you know, obviously when you were an MD PhD student, was there anything in your residency that were you pretty actively involved in, re- in research during your residency um, that kind of kept your, obviously, you know, you did an MD PhD program, you were, you know, clearly interested in doing research. Was there something you did during residency to kind of continue that uh, passion for research? Yeah, honestly, like not really. I, I, I didn't do much research during residency at all because it's, it's actually, I mean, even if you try, like it's actually not very easy. And uh, I, I think, you know, they have these online things like Google Scholar and Scopus or whatever, where you can see how many papers you like publish over, over the years. And like for myself, as well as many people, there'll be like a three, four year gap where there's like very few papers. And like, because you're, you're busy, like you're on call, you're learning all this stuff. Um, my, my residency at UT Southwestern had kind of a nascent uh, research track as well. And I was the first resident to like go through that. And it was like something that didn't exist. And I was sort of like admitted to it later and I was supposed to get academic time. But at the same time, I became a chief resident and like took on all of these administrative things. And so I didn't really, I didn't really achieve a whole lot. And some of, some of that is, a lot of that is my fault, actually, like, because I maybe, you're just busy, right? You know, sure. I think, you, you know, you, you come to grips with like how you can only have so much time and so much effort that you can put forward. But uh, I, I think it was very hard. And I really only kind of re, revamped that a little bit towards the very end of my residency. We had a couple of papers. And uh, then, you know, as I became a fellow, like kind of wrote up a couple of things too. And then it's, it's hard too, because a lot of these things have like a, you know, a year or two lag, right? Like you may work sure. on, uh, on a project and it may not, you may not have an abstract or paper from it for a couple of years, or you may have an abstract like very early and a paper like two, three years later. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I guess um, based on that, um, I guess, are there any, I guess, experiences you think, you know, as a resident, you obviously there's a research track, um, you know, at certain residency programs, but are there things, and I'm even just curious from my own standpoint, uh, that you think you can do as a resident to, I guess, further your research training, if you will, or or your uh, research acumen, uh, you know, at during, as a resident? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I mean, I, I understand, I understand both what you're getting at, and I understand, like, what I think is the best. I mean, I think, like, the first thing that you can do is probably just take a step back and like be kind to yourself and realize that it's hard. And that, that I, I mean, I think like a productive like time for a resident would be like, if you can like, if you can have, you know, finish your four year residency and have like two or three abstracts and like one paper, maybe that's like a pretty, that's a pretty solid like experience for a resident. Mm-hmm. And anything you do like on top of that is like, is huge. And there are definitely people out there who, you know, have 20 abstracts and eight papers and whatever, but they're not the norm. And, uh, and in many ways, like it's, it's not like so desirable for you to do that. Um, I think what you can do is like, just my best advice, I think is to just pick up small projects 
start small. If there are things that you are working on, just be diligent and work on them like a little bit at a time, like and have incremental, make incremental progress and do like a little bit every week. And, you know, by the end you can have a, you know, you can have a couple of papers, you can have a couple of big projects, you can have a couple of small things because you're not going to have the time necessarily to work solidly for like a week. But if you can set aside, you know, 30 minutes a week or whatever to work on some projects, it's the same as if you work on something like this podcast, for instance, right? Like you start off and uh, you're not, you don't have that many and you don't have that much time to spend on it. But if you diligently like do it, you know, every couple of weeks or once a month, twice a month, then over over your residency, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a bunch of podcasts, and it's the same the same for research. If you can do like one project like every six months and get one abstract or two a year, by the end you have a lot of projects and like a lot of progress that you can kind of carry into your future and, and you know your fellowship. Sure, sure. I think that's good to hear. It sounds like from what you're telling me, you know, because I think a lot of residents and medical students for that matter get very starry eyed and think they're, you know, they need to put out 10 publications and everything. And I'm quickly realizing, you know, as a, you know, as, as a resident, I know it only gets busier as I ascend through the ranks, um, that you, you do only have so much time and research does take time. So I, I guess it seems like from what you're telling me, it's better to quality over quantity, even though it's kind of a cliche, but I think it sounds like that's that really, it'd be better to put out like one or two really quality papers than like five or six either that are half finished or that aren't even that, you know, high of quality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there there is some pressure on residents to put out, I'm not going to say like bad quality. There's pressure on residents to make abstracts because most programs will let residents go to meetings. And so if you can get an abstract in a meeting, you get some time off to go to the meeting, which like both gives you days off and is fun to like go to a meeting, interact with your peers, like meet people and like kind of do stuff. And, and, you know, that's Mm -hmm. fun. And then, so I think, you know, if you can do that, but then kind of like hang in there, like sort of just, just push it a little bit further, like see if you can get that paper, you know, like six months or a year later. But I think the expectation like for residents is like not, it's not as high. You just don't feel bad about it because if you're, if you can get a couple of abstracts and a couple of papers, uh, you're doing fine. Great. I guess, you know, you're the director of the research track. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, the research track and like kind of what you're as the director of that, what your aims are for the residents in that? And um, I guess maybe what type of individuals you may try to recruit for that for that particular yeah, track? Of course. I mean, so our, our research track here, we have two research track residents. And so out of the out of the 18 residents, like in the main uh, or in the residency, two of them are sort of two spots are set aside for research track residents. Uh, those residents like get some additional time for research. So during their first year, they get about one day a month for research. And then during their years two through four, they get about one day a week for research. So close, close to 20% time like through their residency to do, to do research. And the goal of that is to produce people who are interested in academics who wanna keep doing academic things. And uh, we kind of, high, Basically, I've explained, you know, accidentally, like why you need that. And that's because you don't have time like a lot for research. And so a lot of people come in they have many medical students like trying to, you know, start academic careers, have a lot of research or they have a decent research background. Some people have spent one or more years off like doing research, either as master's programs or five-year, uh, five-year MD programs like they have at Cleveland Clinic where you kind of do research. 
And uh, what we want to do is give people some time and resources to kind of have continuity so that they can carry on those uh, goals of being a physician scientist later in their career and kind of keep, keep their momentum going that they've developed in the past by staying involved in research, writing some, some abstracts and papers, hopefully learning more about writing grants uh, because we want you to get some experience in that. And if it can be successful, like that's, that's amazing as well. So that when you finish, you're like ready to like keep doing research in your fellowship and you kind of, kind of have an idea of your direction, uh, you know, where you're going when you finish. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I guess one thing I'm wondering, you know, I always wonder, you know, for individuals that go through an MD PhD program, do you feel like that gave you a pretty big advantage, you know, with kind of jumpstarting a, a career in research and, uh, I guess if, if yes, why so? Yeah. I mean, if we're doing research, like a hundred percent, I mean, I think the skills that you develop in a program like that are, uh, so, so I'll take a step back and saying like doing an MD PhD is not a prerequisite for being a physician scientist It's not required. And like, I, I get, it's not a requirement for our research track residency, it's, I mean, like, cause people get intimidated and they worry that they don't have like the skills, like that's gonna, that they don't have all of this experience, right? Because they didn't spend four years like doing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, you don't have, you don't have to have that. And like everyone kind of comes in at a different level. And one of our keys is to meet people at the level that they're at and help them become their own personal best researchers, right? And some people come in with a tremendous amount of experience and all we have to do is like point them in the right direction and like they go. And some people come in with greater uncertainty and they need more, um, they need more nurturing and, uh, you know, mentoring, like in terms of how to find a mentor and how to, how to write a paper. But the real advantage of like these extensive research experience, like a, like an MD PhD program is gaining those uh, intangible skills in terms of how to, how to pick up a paper from the literature and interpret it how to write a paper, like from start to finish, how to plan your experiments and like think about what your paper is gonna be like before you ever start your experiments and uh, how to write a grant and a lot of these like uh, intangible skills that, so even though my projects now have nothing to do with liver ablation, uh, the, you know, most of the skills like actually like translate because it's, it's time management, it's writing papers, it's, uh, it's, you know, learning how to teach and all of those things, like they're applicable, like both to the research I do now, but they're also applicable, like in the clinical setting. I mean, because the same skills like are valuable, like how to explain, like how to explain yourself and like your research and what you're doing is directly, I mean, if you develop some skills in that, then you're probably going to have this, use the same skills to explain to a resident how to interpret a head CT and, uh, how to start off as a resident and uh, a lot of those skills like translate over. So, yeah, I mean, it's a tremendous advantage uh, whether or not it's a lot of that for, I spent four extra years like doing a PhD. You could argue that a decent amount of that four years was like wasted doing other stuff like taking courses and TAing and like all this stuff, but cumulatively it's, it's uh, you know, it's a tremendous advantage. And I, I use many of those skills multiple times daily. Sure. Sure. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are for people who don't do the research, uh, MD, PhD, but maybe they do like, you know, I think it's becoming more common for, you know, students to take a year off between their third and fourth year or after their fourth year, 
you know, what, what you've seen kind of from that, do you think there's still, even though obviously a year is much shorter amount of time compared to, you know, a four or five year PhD, do you think that's worth the, the time to develop into a researcher? Or I guess, what are your kind of your thoughts on, on people who do, or, you know, maybe they pursue like a Howard Hughes fellowship or something like that. Um, kind of what are your thoughts on that? I think like if you, if your career goal is to be a physician scientist, right? So to be in academic medicine and have research as like one of your core elements, you have to put in that time at some point in your career. You just have to decide like when, when is it going to be right? And like, so you're going to have to pick up those skills, like the ones we just talked about. And so is it going to be when you're, are you going to do an, a formal MD PhD program and spend, you know, have that chunk of four to six years, like there where you're just doing it is, does your school offer some opportunities to, like you said, like take some time at the NIH or do one of these, you know, visiting scholar programs, or does everyone at your school have a dedicated research experience? Um, you can do that. You can have a research residency uh, where uh, we, you know, like our residency here, where you have some devoted time for research or after you finish like, you know, your residency, you might have a clinical or sort of like a postdoc or some part of research as your fellowship. You may prolong your, uh, your training to gain some extra experience. Um, or you may even take like a job that's like more research oriented, like after you finish. But at some point you have to learn those skills. If you don't, you get to the end and you get a job at an academic place and you don't have any of the basic skills that you need uh, to get started. And it's hard, like it, it, it's much harder to gain traction like at a later time because much more is expected of you. Because when you start as a faculty member, you have all this stuff like you need to do. You've gotta, you've gotta like learn how to sign studies and like be the final like expert, like who's taking care of like the patients. Uh, you have administrative things like you got to deal with like your scheduling, your teaching and all of that stuff and trying to learn some of those basic skills. I'm not going to say you can't do it, but it's much it's not that practical. Uh, so so I think that like people, if you're serious about research as a career, spending some dedicated amount of time uh, earlier in your career, whether it's a year off before you go to medical school, a year off in medical school. I think most people who like become serious physician scientists have some sort of prolonged research experience. Uh, the PhD people like tend to have the most, but just, I, and I don't think that's, not everyone needs four years of research experience to become a research faculty. It's probably too much, but, but like, I think that it really like helps a lot. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think I, I can attest that even in my own personal growth, I think, you know, working with you, I, I came in, I knew, you know, kind of how to write some papers and things like that. But I think what I learned a lot working with you is how to, you know, become a little bit more independent and like, you know, planning out a research study, kind of what we want to like get out of the research study, kind of, I think at a med student level, you're still kind of doing what the attending tells you or the senior resident you may be working with. And I imagine that's kind of probably what you're trying to foster as well in the, in the research track is kind of like that evolution of, you know, being more of the lower level worker who's still learning, but then almost like how, you know, residency clinically is structured where you kind of graduate to a higher level of autonomy or autonomous thinking, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, And, and that's absolutely the case. And like the first, like the first step, like as a researcher is usually like someone giving you a handmade project, like where the data like may or may not even be collected or it's ready to be collected or everything is kind of just there. 
and you just, you're told exactly what to do and you do it and you come back with the results. And uh, that's, that's great. Like, I mean, that's the equivalent of like taking like a Lego kit or whatever and like the instructions and like you follow it and like, it's a simple kit. And then what happens is, is like you, you build on that a little more, you do something more complex, right? And then eventually, though, you, you want to be the one who's designing the kits, right? Who's like, uh, who's coming up with your own designs and like in your own things and like taking them from start to finish, not just doing uh, what someone else is telling you because you want to be an independent researcher. But it takes a lot of time to do that. I mean, it takes a lot of iteration and experience. And you do a little bit more of that each time. And, uh, and then, you, you know, you get a little bit better every time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um kind of, I guess, winding back here, um, when you were, you know, and I think you've, you've talked about this, maybe more so from the, the clinical side of things, when you were in med school, what, like during your rotations kind of pushed you towards going into radiology? I, I think like by the time I finished like my PhD project, I was pretty exposed to radiology, but I was still kind of open to other things. And I was one of these people who uh, kind of likes everything. Like I sort of, I, I mean, like my first rotation back, like from my PhD was uh, psychiatry and like psychiatry is so far different from radiology that it's, it's unbelievable, but I had a great time and I, I loved it. And like, I sort of, I'm the kind of person who can kind of throw myself into like whatever, whatever I'm doing. I really enjoyed surgery. Uh, but it, I think what, I, there were many aspects of other uh, specialties that like I didn't necessarily like. I mean, internal medicine, I enjoy. And like, I think that it's fun, like making the diagnosis for that, like first 24 hours. So when you get like a new patient, it's like, it's really, it's fun, like doing the problem solving and like things from the beginning, but I didn't enjoy like the, the prolonged like continuity of it. Like that had, mm -hmm. I just didn't enjoy it. Like there wasn't like a lot of value for me. I didn't like, uh, the, I didn't like the sort of like a patient placement and like dealing with the outpatient stuff and things like that. And then I kind of realized that radiology was that problem solving part. So it, it was sort of the condensed version. It, it was the part that I liked. It sort of took the, the part that I liked out of all, out of all the specialties, like sort of the problem solving, the diagnosis and kind of uh, the critical thinking that was sort of involved in that part and then got rid of the parts that I didn't like. It's sort of like all the paperwork. I didn't, I didn't really care for discharge summaries and like all, all of that and met reconciliation. And so I, I think radiology like was sort of, it just sort of confirmed for me that it fit my personality. And I think that that's, that's like the most important part for anyone choosing a specialty is like what, what fits your personality, right? Like you, do you really enjoy getting the patient feedback that like you did something for them and you made them feel better and you helped them because you don't get that in radiology, right? You get that in surgery and internal medicine and the clinic specialties. Like it wasn't important for me, but for some people may get really driven by that. And it's really can be really fulfilling for some people. And so I think if you can be a little introspective about it and uh, look at what might drive you, then that's, that's the most important thing. Sure. Sure. Um, awesome. I think kind of switching gears here a little bit, uh, you know, you're obviously very involved in teaching and as the listeners may not know, you were voted the uh, resident teacher of the year. Uh, I think at least once, once a couple of years ago, and certainly one of the, the favorites among the residents for sure. Um, I guess what kind of stems, what kind of, 
take us back a little bit, kind of how you did with your research. Like, how did you get really interested in teaching and, you know, um, what kind of drives your, your teaching today? I mean, that's like, uh, that's a huge question. I think, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer because for me, like I was always interested in research, but I, I, I guess I didn't really know, like, uh, I, it's not like I immediately knew, like I liked teaching and like, I wanted mm-hmm. to do, to do these things. I think probably what's driven like my interest in teaching, like more than anything is just a recognition that like these things are hard and a recognition that too many of the materials and things that are told to, that we're told to learn from that we're told to do uh, are too hard actually for the level that we're at. Like there's a gap. Um, because like the, for instance, there's like radiology textbooks that are like great. And they're these like quintessential textbooks, but like, they don't, they don't tell you like how to sit down like the first day and like how to approach, like, like you can tell me about like what an aneurysm is, or you can tell me about like what, what the, you know, brain tumor looks like on an MRI, but like, I don't need to know that. I need to know like, what is this thing that I'm looking at at all? Like, what are the sequences? Like, how do I even scroll? Like, what does this mean? which side is the left and which side is the right. And like, I think that like, there's a big gap there. And then always like, I've always like tried to make the, I've always tried to make the, uh, to, to approach it from the fact that like, probably no teaching can be too simple. And like that you're very rarely gonna give a lecture where someone comes out and says like, that lecture was too basic or too dumb for me. But like I go to lectures all the time where after 15 minutes, I kind of like zone out and it's just because it's above the level that I need. And like, they're not explaining like the stuff that I need and it's not broadly interesting enough. So I try to bring that to the reading room. Like when I teach people, I try to bring that to like the education videos and things like that, other efforts to just try to meet people like at their level and try to guide them through like some of the intangible things, which are not necessarily taught all the time. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, I try to do that as well. in my teaching is, it's kind of bringing it, you know, no, you can't make it too simple, I think, especially, um, and I think sim- usually simpler ways of explaining things, the better. Um, because again, like you don't know where everyone's at and, and also, um, you know, making it, putting it in a way t- that someone can understand, I think it's probably the, you know, the challenge a oftentimes people find with, with, uh, with teaching or they may not, they might not realize it, but it seems like that's kind of the challenge that, you know, there's certain, you know, educators or, you know, faculty that are, they're so smart and then they're so, you know, when they're so, but they're so far out from where someone's been, you know, especially in like my stage or even a medical student stage that they may forget that, like, you don't remember all, <laughs> you don't know all of this stuff to start yeah, and, out and with. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's the hardest, right? I, the, it's to be when you're young, when you're young faculty, like you kind of remember what it's like because you remember like what it was like, you know, your first day in the reading room and your first day, like picking up dictaphone and like dictating some cases. And it's easy to remember, but we get buried in like years and years of jargon. And like you do it for so long that like, you don't recognize like how much of it you were learning by osmosis, right? I mean, you were taking in like such a, so much like every day. And uh, so I think like, it's, it's hard to reset and like go back and we forget about like all the, all the little intermediate steps that we had to take to like learn these things. I mean, I, I think it's very challenging to like try to focus on that and take that step back. And I think probably, you know, as I get like further out from training, I think it, it does get harder. And I, I think, you know, kind of keeping that sort of approach is, is hard and like, hopefully I can continue to do it, but it is, it is a challenge for sure. 
I think le- leading into that, you know, you, we were talking about before we started uh, the episode was, you know, your YouTube channel, Learn Neuro- Neuroradiology. Uh, congratulations. You just hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is, as I, I said, I'm very excited. Like I, I was <laughs> telling you, you know, I can't believe there's like 10,000 nerds out there that want to learn, uh, <laughs> that want to learn neuroradiology. But, uh, but no, I mean, it's been, it's been really exciting and really fun. And uh, it's, it's funny because I didn't really, I always wanted to like, you know, have education things and like educate people and help them uh, kind of grow and become better, you know, at radiology, but it wasn't, I never really sat down thinking like, oh, I'm going to start a YouTube channel. Uh, At first, I like kind of had some education materials that were kind of left over and they had been recorded, like they were recorded like as lectures. So I thought like, how can I, how can I use these like for something that's useful? And I kind of split them up and like put them on YouTube and a few people saw them. And then I had a few more and I put them up and then a few more people saw them and it was getting more interest than I thought possible. Right. Like it was sort of, I I was surprised, I think at the level of interest and the comments I was getting. And then from that, I kind of started to tailor it a little bit more uh, towards the medium, right? Like, because just taking like an hour long lecture that you would give a resident, I mean, you can put that on YouTube and it's fine but it's not necessarily like appropriate to the medium. Like it doesn't necessarily fit the time that people have. It may or may not be like designed for the web, like where people can easily, like, I think we've all seen those videos where it's like a camera, like in the back of a lecture hall and someone at a podium and you can only halfway see like the slides and it's sort of like, you just see like some dude with his brown suit. And like, it's just, I think like making it for the medium and making it appropriate timeframes and then as I started doing that, like it really took off and uh, a lot of people have, have sort of found it and then seeing people find it has gotten me excited about doing it more and made it easier for me to spend more time doing it and like making actual like, you know, new content for it uh, because it is exciting to see like how many people it can, it can reach and like how many people it can help. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I guess my question to you is, is, did you, promote it that much or is it just people found it organically through just searching for because it's it's a little bit of a niche uh, audience uh you it's know, a super <laughs> it's a super small niche and and, and like, that's why i think it's like really funny that there are ten thousand subscribers i i didn't i think i didn't really promote it at first because i was a little bit embarrassed by it because i thought <laughs> that it probably like wasn't very good and uh i didn't really want to i didn't really want to put myself out there i was like oh, oh i I'll put myself out there a little bit, but I don't want to like advertise to like the residents be like, Hey, like check out like the channel. And uh, so I just sort of uh, put it out there like on YouTube. And then I, I, to make it sort of streamlined, I kind of made a corresponding website. So you can find all this stuff, you know, on the website at learnerradiology.com. And like, they sort of just became synergistic and like people find them and like building on the content that people started to find it like from, you know, they find it from Google search and just by being sort of, it's the same thing about research projects, like just being diligent about putting up a video, like every couple of months, making sure the descriptions like are appropriate and like making sure the search engine optimization, like is kind of right. Mm-hmm. And then people start to find it on YouTube. They start to find it on the web. And then it sort of just became sort of, uh, it was organic. Like it wasn't really promoted. And it's funny because I think there's like, there's probably like people in our residency that they don't even realize that like it's there or they may see it and just not even realize that it's me. 
And uh, because I'm not, I mean, I usually am not like promoting it like real big or something. Like I'll mention it like in lectures or I'll, I'll tell people at the end that, you know, they can check out more lectures there if they have time or they can many times like the lectures that I give are recorded in some sort of older form, uh, you know, online so they can go back and review them later, which I think is, is sometimes useful. Sure, sure. And it seems like you, you've tried, you've kind of evolved from, like you said, posting lectures that you gave, you know, you know, maybe at, you know, resident conference or something like that to now where it's, it's a little bit more of a formalized curriculum. It seems like you're trying to build out. Is that, is that kind of where you're trying to, you know, take the website further or. Yeah. Because I mean, the, the lowest hanging fruit, like if you're an academic radiologist, like you probably have given some lectures. And so you have some lectures, you have some lecture materials. So the easiest thing is just to record what you have. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's number one, it's like usually too long. And so breaking it into some more tangible pieces like uh, is, is something that you can easily do to kind of make it more, more interesting and easily, easily accessible. Like I want something that like if you're on a rotation, you can go and if there's a topic that you need to learn about, you can watch a video in like five, 10 minutes, like before you read out or between cases or while you're like uh, while you're on the subway, like riding home. And like that, I think is more tangible uh, we've done some things like with also like a little more innovative, like where there's there's now videos that like kind of explain how to do something, like how to interpret a CTA of the head and neck and where there's cases that you can see and that you can scroll on your own as you go through the video to kind of make it like really hands on to kind of more simulate like what the day to day life of, uh, of radiologists like might be like. And so you can really like uh, get in there. And that's something that you can't do. For the most part, you can't do it even in a lecture and uh, it really has to, you know, you can do it like usually only like with one-on-one teaching. And I think people have really responded well, well to those types of videos. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you kind of hope that this is maybe a direction that like radiology, residency didactics or, or supplement or at least like external learning, you know, because not only, you know, we learn obviously on the job as residents, but, you know, we need to, you know, study outside to, to really get the most out of it do you see kind of these type of resources being the future of I guess resident education I think so and and so it's funny because uh there's a there's a paper that's going to come out in uh in academic radiology like this month or maybe the next month or so about uh the experience of the of a team at Johns Hopkins that has a lot of videos on YouTube and uh as part of that like I wrote an editorial like introducing that paper and uh, kind of give my perspective about like what that is. But I think we're definitely headed that, that direction in terms of what education should be and what it, what it should be like, because I think we, like, for the most part, like we, when I, when I was a resident and even now, like we have like, people are a little bit stuck on like the old materials. It's like, we well, should be reading books. And I, I mean, I, it's fine. Like, yeah, you should read books, but like, they're in many ways, they're too long. They're too hard to pay attention to. They're too boring and uh, they're too slow to like get updated. Like many of these books, like they get updated in cycles like 10 years at a time. They can't anticipate like a lot of these like future things that you can do. And it's also like, I think for most people, we overestimate like their level of attention and like their attention span by like pretending that someone can go home and read a book for three hours, like after a day of doing radiology, like, I mean, at a residency like ours, you work pretty hard. You see a bunch of cases during the day. If you go home and read for three hours, like good for you. But like, I don't think that 
I don't think anybody's really doing that, nor really should they be. Uh, and I think like if you can have it in a way that's like memorable and digestible and in a short format that like people and people have lives, right? I mean, they go home, they have their spouses, their significant others, they have kids, like you, you need to, we need to account for that. And I think that like the online videos are like a great way to do that because they're sort of digestible and they're, they're short and they sort of meet people where they are. And you can also design videos that are appropriate to different levels. And like, we have these books and many books are designed for experts, right? Like, I mean, I look at my shelf and like there's books for brain tumor experts and pediatric neuroradiology experts, but like the gap and like, how do you sit down and like window like a head CT? Uh, I don't know if there's a book on like my shelf that like explains that actually, like maybe. Right. Uh, right. But, but like, I think it's hard and I think you can kind of have that whole range and it's much easier for people to find it and choose uh, when it, when it's available on, you know, their computers and their devices. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you really hit on a good point that, you know, it's, it's much more digestible content. And then also, you know, it's, you know, the, the reading room, especially, you know, at, you know, our sites at Emory can get really hectic and it may be, you know, there isn't always time for, you know, an expert like yourself to walk, you know, a newer resident through, you know, a head CT or a brain MR or, you know, and so, you know, with a video, you can, you know, take your time and walk, you know, someone to walk, whoever it is, you know, through it. And, you know, they can do it at their own pace. You know, if they're maybe a little more advanced, they can, you know, if they're more at the fellow level or senior resident, they can maybe speed through certain parts. Um, I think that's also kind of a big advantage that the videos would offer uh, as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, absolutely. And I think that like along those same lines, I think like sometimes like it, junior residents, junior learners, they're, uh, they may be a little more timid. They may not, they may be afraid to, uh, to admit that they don't know something and like to ask me to explain it from the beginning. But it's, it's sort of like one of these things that's like, well, you, you know, I have no idea what's going on here. And like, at this point, I'm afraid to ask. And uh, I mean, because I, I distinctly remember when I was a resident, like having some readout and writing down, uh, writing down words phonetically because I didn't know what they were. And then I was going to dictate them into PowerScribe to see what came out. That way I could find out like what they were talking about. And I didn't want to ask, like, I didn't want to ask, like, did you say skewedum? Like, I, I mean, like, I, I don't, I mean, I just wrote it down because you don't want to ask. And so the videos are like a non-judgmental way. Like you can go and you can review some of these things that are like, it, they may be seen as basic, like where you don't want to ask, like, uh, you don't want to ask your attending, like, hey, can you tell me like what a window and level is again? Like, it, it, because it, I don't know, you may just be a little bit, uh, a little bit embarrassed about that or a little bit reserved. And then you can do it, you can do it on your own time and like, you know, kind of gradually become an expert. Sure. Sure. Um, well, I guess for, as a radiology resident, thank you for producing those videos. And I, I hope there's, there's more to come for those. <laughs> of course, of course. I, you know, they're only limited by time. I mean, I wish that like I had like more time to make more, uh, but, but it's, again, it's like, uh, it's like I was saying about research, you know, you keep working on them a little bit at a time and then, uh, you know, I work on it like a little bit and, uh, then sort of like things go in kind of spurts on a couple of videos here and there and, uh, you know, then kind of continue to, to do more. So I, I hope we can keep doing more. And like I said, my, my interest in doing more is driven by, uh, by the, the excitement about them. And when I hear people say like they, they enjoy it and that they learn from it, uh, you know, that makes me want to do it more. Awesome. Awesome. I guess one thing I'm thinking of here is, you know, you're, you're involved in, you know, various different activities. How do you balance your time? Like what, I think that's, you know, obviously the, the ever, you know, kind of the, 
I don't know how to call it, but I guess, I guess the, you know, the goal we're always trying to attain is how to balance, how to balance everything, but also, you know, especially cause I'm a similar person to you. Like I have a lot of, as you know, varied interests um, and endeavors and things like that. I guess what, what's your strategy for kind of like managing all of those and, you know, obviously doing them so successfully as you've done. I, oh man. That, I mean, that's hard. Like, I think you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge like for everybody. Right. I think uh, you, you have to, I think you first have to admit that like, you're not going to be able to do everything you want to do and not like, not judge yourself. Like when it's Saturday and like, you, you know, you had a list of tasks of 10 things you wanted to do in the week and you only did four of them. There are six left. You just have to like acknowledge that like those tasks are getting rolled to next week and not like, not, not get too like down on yourself and also not take time away from like the things you got to do to take care of yourself, like hanging out with your, you know, your family, your friends, like doing things that you like to do. Um, and, and don't like, uh, get too down on yourself in, in those, in those kinds of things for not, for not doing those things. I think the things that are important, I th- it's best if you can schedule some time for them, right? Like, so if you need to work on a grant, if you can just go in your calendar and like put a block of time, like I have three hours, I'm going to work on the grant. I'm not going to check my email during that time. I'm not going to work on my website during that time. I'm not going to do whatever and kind of schedule, schedule the real important things and then do the things that like are easier and in smaller pieces, responding to emails, like, uh, you know, editing, editing documents and, you know, signing reports in like times that are like a little bit when you're tired, when, when you kind of need a break while you, while you drink your coffee, like while you, while you eat breakfast, like whatever. And sure. kind of, I think that's like probably the best thing you can do. But then also like just sort of keeping track of the big picture and kind of setting like goals you, you want to have like, you know, a year from now, like two years from now, do you want to, do you want to publish five papers? Do you want to write a grant? Do you want to have 15,000 YouTube subscribers? Like, what is it, what is it that you want to do? And then kind of work towards that, like a, a little bit at a time. And uh, you'll, you'll find that like you exceed your goals uh, most of the time. I, I did not have a goal of like maybe having 10,000 YouTube subscribers. I had like a goal of maybe having a thousand and like, but you keep kind of doing the same stuff and it just builds on it a little bit at a time. Nice. Nice. Um, I guess kind of wrapping things up here. Um, what are kind of, you know, your advice for, I guess one, you know, radio people, you know, med students that are, you know, thinking of applying to radiology residency or applying to radio. I know that really, we could probably do a whole podcast on that alone. But I guess what are your kind of your general your general tips to you know people like presenting their I guess kind of presenting the best version of themselves when they apply? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the hardest thing for us is like trying to figure out like who's like genuinely interested, right? And mm-hmm. uh, that that's like both who's genuinely interested in radiology and who's genuinely interested like in our region, right? And like in our program specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think the way you prove the first is you do some radiology stuff, right? Like you, you have some radiology electives, like in your school, you get to know some of the radiology faculty, which might be, I mean, you might do some research projects with them or some education thing or something just to get to know them a little bit so that they can write you a letter. And like, uh, because you want, you want some proof that like you're kind of committed to radiology as a field. If you're able to do, you know, six months, a year of research, like that's great, but it's not necessary for everyone. 
but just having enough to show like that's what you're uh, that's what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. I think you know residency applications, and like you said, we could do like a whole podcast about residency applications. Like we'll, we'll do that another time. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's really hard now, uh, especially with the number of applications like people get. I think it, it's hard to differentiate yourself, um, especially in a time of virtual interviews when people can apply to so many places. I think. You know, in your personal statement, I think it's great to have something specific about like that specific program or at least like that specific region. Like, why do you want to go to the Southeast? Why is Georgia a great place for you? Why do you want to go to Emory? Why is it the Emory re- research track? Like, why is it a good fit for you? Why do you want to do research? Um, I think those things like all can kind of help sort of differentiate you a little bit uh, because we see things that are just a little too generic sometimes. And unfortunately, it's because people, because you got to click, you got to send this to 80 places or whatever. And I know you're probably, you probably don't have the effort to like do the same thing for 80 places, but I know you probably have the effort to do it for your best five. And so if I see something specific, like, oh, you know, then I know you probably we're probably like not, I'm not going to say like at the top, but I know you care enough about here to learn a little bit about it, mention it in your personal statement, send me an email and like, uh, you know, tell me like why you're interested in here because your spouse works at Georgia Tech or whatever, then that, that goes a long way actually. Cause not only we're interested in having the best residents, but we're also interested in having the best residents who want to be here and who are going to have a good time here. And that is the hardest to find. I think that almost all the like medical students going into radiology are great and would do a great job, but uh, you know, getting them matched up to places where they want to be and can do well is, can be a little hard. Sure. Sure. No, and I can attest to that. I think, I think you gave me that advice when I was applying and, you know, I think there were a handful of programs. I put kind of a personal touch, as you said, in the personal statement. And I can attest to when I interviewed at such places that was definitely commented on when I, when I interviewed. So I think it kind of, yeah, because I mean, it like, because I mean, it takes like, even, I mean, if it takes a, you know, an hour or whatever to like research a place, figure Mm -hmm. out like what kind of people might be there, some special feature about the program. And when you mention those things, it tells me like this person's invested enough that they cared enough to find those things. Mm -hmm. They found a couple of potential researchers they might work with and uh, they don't have to work with that person, but it shows that like they paid enough attention and it wasn't just another like of 80 clicks. Um, I, I mean, unfortunately, like that's the environment we're in right now. I wish it were like a little bit easier for residents to signal to us that like we're a top program for them and we could do the same for, for them. But it's just, it's a little hard right now. Sure, sure. Yeah, I imagine that it makes, makes definitely adds more challenges uh, that maybe even weren't foreseen. Um, okay. I would say uh, kind of wrapping up here, um, we ask everybody this when you're not doing all these amazing endeavors and then obviously your clinical practice, what, what do you do outside of the hospital and your research? What, what do you do with your spare time? Well, I obviously like make websites. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, I mean, it's like, it's funny because I, I do kind of think that like uh, if you, when you enjoy your work and like, it doesn't really feel like work. So like the website and like the things like that, the YouTube channel, it never really felt quite like work because I was doing it for fun. It was sort of a side thing. Sure. I do, I do spend probably a sad amount of my free time like, working <laughs> on things like that. Um, no, I love sports. I mean, like I'm a big fan of football. Like, uh, you know, we, we have season tickets to the Falcons and like, so we try to go to those games and, uh, it's hard to be a Falcons fan. Like I'll, I'll admit that like, uh, 
they just can't they just can't get it together but uh you know that's what makes us fans i guess is like we forgive them and like we go back like the next week and so uh, i like to uh, like to do that um, my right. brother lives here so we like to hang out with him and go to the games with him and uh he's got a couple of little kids so we like hang out with them and like play sports and stuff with them so that's a that's a good time so i i think you know sports is a big part of thing uh we, we love cooking as well like i spend a lot of time like cooking at home like uh you know both uh you know kind of in the kitchen and like also outside like do a little do a little grilling like a little smoking and uh you, you know have some uh, have some stuff outside on the barbecue nice nice um well dr weinberg thank you for joining us uh on this podcast episode, I think provide a lot of value for, you know, students, residents, you know, interested in radiology or, or current radiology residents, and then people interested in, you know, pursuing research as a, as a huge part of their career. And, uh, just want to thank you for your, you know, your, your time and, and, uh, your expertise is, uh, definitely sure, sure. It. it's been a pleasure. Like I'm happy to come back anytime we can, uh, we can find other topics to talk about. And, uh, if anyone has any questions, like, you know, feel free to, uh, to reach out to me by email or, or find me on the website or YouTube or whatever, like hit me up at the Twitter DMs and, uh, and then we'll, uh, you know, I try to help people uh, as much as I can, like find careers that suit them, places that are good for them. And I can't always, uh, I, you know, I can't, I can't guarantee that like, you know, you're going to get like everything you want, but I can, I can tell you like uh, through careful practice and kind of searching for, for the right opportunities, you, you'll find things that are good for you. Definitely. Yeah. I guess you just remind me, is there any, I, what's your Twitter handle? Is there, is there anything else? You oh, want my Twitter to is like real simple. It's like just <laughs> at Brent Weinberg. So it's just the way my name is spelled. And okay. uh, yeah, yeah. You can, you can also like go through the YouTube channel or whatever you can find, uh, find email and whatever. So those are, those are fine. We have a lot of fun on Twitter. Like we have the nerdiest tweets possible. <laughs> I, I also can't believe there's a many nerds on Twitter, but, uh, that, that's how it is. So uh, we, we have a fun time on there. We have radiology cases. We have like, you know, stupid memes. Like it's great. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, we'll definitely put your, your Twitter handle and your, and definitely learn neuroradiology as well and your, your website and your YouTube channel. So people can check that out um, and, and uh, reach out to you if, 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 if they want to. Great. Um, great. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining no us. Appreciate it's been a pleasure. It. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. 
please be sure to tune in for our next episode. 